Hello and welcome to Real Living. This is Lavinia Spirito and we got something special for you today, something different. I recorded a series on the passion and the resurrection and the burial of the Lord. And I thought that it might be interesting to present them in podcast form for Lent. And I think this should be interesting for you all. So enjoy. The emphasis that we are putting on the verses on these 20 verses should kind of give away the fact that this is a very important lesson. And there's a lot of stuff going on here that um, is going to set us up for Holy Week. That's really important. You know, obviously, for the, from now on out, we're going to be talking about events surrounding right before the Passion, during the Passion, and after the Passion. And as we know, the Passion is like the most, uh, you know, important series of events that there is for us as Christians. Actually, it's the most important series of events ever, except that a lot of people don't know that. You know, they think that, you know, the Super Bowl is the most important moment or, you know, what, whatever that is. You know, there, there is a lot of um, misplacement of focus in today's world. But today, hopefully, we're going to try and kind of set up the stage for the important, crucial events of Holy Week. Now, the traditional, Dolly, would you close the door, please? Just close those two doors, thanks. The traditional calendar for the last week of Jesus, now, first of all, you have to keep in mind, we have certain events that are ascribed by tradition as happening on certain days of Holy Week. But on the other hand, you also have to keep in mind that Holy Week, in this case, from the entry into Jerusalem until the Passion, probably was more than a week. Okay, there's lots of events going on. There's lots of ways in which time was collapsed. But traditionally, on Sunday, we have the entry of Holy Week. We have the entry into Jerusalem, Passion, you know, uh, Passion Sunday. Then we have on Monday, traditionally, the cleansing of the temple. On Tuesday, we have the various bickering with the leaders, the controversies with the leaders where Jesus has all these dialogues with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. On Wednesday, it seems to be a day of rest where nothing much happened. And that which, which, you know, when you think about what happens on Thursday, which is, of course, the events of the Passover and of the Last Supper, the arrest, and then Friday trials, the crucifixion, Saturday and Sunday, we have the resurrection, of course. Saturday, the resting in the tomb, the harrowing of hell, and the uh, resurrection on Sunday. So we have quite a, quite a week, you know, even if it's uh, uh, symbolically or figuratively speaking a week and it's actually uh, a bit more time collapsed into, into these, um, these days. Another thing you need to keep in mind is if we're going to put the map up, I'll show you. Jesus has finally arrived. Last time we left him in Jericho, and as we know, Jericho is about 16 miles down from Jerusalem, um, about 4,000 feet below Jerusalem, because it's almost a thousand feet under, uh, below sea level. And we have Jesus uh, accomplishing what he does. Uh, where is Jericho? Right here. We're at Jericho, and then slowly winding up on the road to go to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is about 400 feet below the Mount Olive, Mount Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, where Bethany is situated. And then this other city we're going to hear about today called Bethphage. Okay, so we have Bethany, Beit Anya, remember House of Dates, and we have Bethphage or Bethphag, which is the House of Figs, which considering the climate, you know, makes sense. You know, it's a very agricultural society, and they are located on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. If you put, I'm sorry, if you put that map back up, 
uh, you'll see that there's a pretty close geographical relationship between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, and that actually the Mount of Olives is about 400 feet over or on top standing over Jerusalem. So that if you're on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, you can actually look into the city. And so when you picture Jesus weeping over the city, that's probably a good place for him to be because he, we know he's, he's making day trips into the city, but he's actually probably staying the night at the house of his friends Martha and Mary and Lazarus in Bethany. So he's not really spending the night in Jerusalem. He's going in for the day. It's about a mile and a half, two, two miles. And then he's coming back into Bethany. And so um, it's really no surprise that arrangements have been made in the adjacent city of Bethphage, which they don't really haven't really located exactly where it would be because it's uh, been completely obliterated. Whereas instead we know where Bethany is. And so... It's no surprise that some sort of secret arrangements have been made with probably disciples or people who are sympathetic to Jesus in Bethphage. And that's why you have all this cryptic stuff. And if they ask you, why are they loosing the donkey? You have to say, the Lord has need. You know, it almost sounds like a code, you know. And, uh, and, and, and some think that that's part of the whole secrecy of the arrangements with the disciples providing the, the, the ride into Jerusalem, you know, providing... The, the donkey or the colt the colt of the donkey into into Jerusalem. Uh, you know, whenever I, I well, not whenever, but occasionally when I read about uh, Passion Sunday, especially the entry into Jerusalem Palm Sunday, I think about that scene out of Jesus Christ Superstar. Anybody remember Jesus Christ Superstar? Jesus walk is is coming into town, and the, the Pharisees are all kind of hanging off scaffolding, you know, because it's a very theatrical piece, and they look like crows. And they're, and he's coming in up to the city, and these Pharisees are kind of hanging off these the scaffolding like crows, you know, kind of looking at him, uh, saying, "Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up." Basically, and Jesus says, "What? Even if they would be quiet, the stones, the very stones." would cry out, which turns out actually to be an Aramaic pro proverb, which means the stones will cry out, meaning what? You can't, there's a situation in which you cannot keep silent, okay? So, of course, you know, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was nothing like what you may have seen in movies, least of all, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which had its place, I'm sure, but um, I would say probably the entry of Jerusalem was portrayed beautifully by Giotto, um, here, I, you know, how was it? Who knows how it was? It probably was a smaller scale than what we think it was because um, although we do have the city swollen at the Passover with almost twice its membership, you know, we have people, remember the pilgrims coming in for the Passover? We do have a, a scenario where we have two or three different groups of people unrelated who don't really know what's going on. We have one group of pilgrims who are just there for the Passover, and isn't this great? And let's go get our tickets for, you know, for, you know, imagine a Disney World kind of thing. <laughs> let's go get our tickets to get into the temple or whatever. And they're just there, and they don't know anything. They don't know much about why you know, who this guy is who's coming in. And then, you, of course, you have two other groups, right? The Sadducees, who are not happy to see him. Why? Because they have a pretty cozy arrangement with the Romans, and they don't really want to see anybody rocking the boat. And so it's a, it's a purely economic reason, really, for, for the Sadducees. They're temple-based. They're Jerusalem-based. They're most of the nobility. They have a, a certain stake invested in the status quo. 
And they don't want any fiery, itinerant rabbi to be marching in and kind of, you know, upsetting everything. And so you have the Sadducees. We already have people amongst the Sadducees like Caiaphas, for example, the high priest, who's already rumbling around saying things like, it might be better for one guy to die than for the Romans to come in and wipe the rest of us off the map. Okay? And then, of course, you have groups like the Pharisees who have been following him and who actually have a detailed list of his supposed faults. Well, and he transgressed the Sabbath here, and he ate with sinners here, and he touched a leper right here, and here he touched a dead body, and here he, you know, conversed with, with uh, sinners and tax collectors. And, you know, so you have uh, these groups. And then, of course, let's add another group, the Romans. You know, <clears throat> and the Romans, most of them, are soldiers policing uh, a very unpleasant city in a backwater of the Roman Empire. And, and all they want to do is just go home. You know, collect their pension and go home. And hopefully not get killed by all these volatile hotheads who have converged into the city uh, and have made the whole situation kind of a powder keg. So think about all that stuff that's going on. Also think about another common fallacy is to ascribe to the crowd who welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem by saying, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, with the words crucify him later on. It's probably fairly clear that the, that the words were uttered by the crowd um, around the courtyard of the Antonia Fortress where Jesus was being tortured and, 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 and scourged uh, was a different crowd. It was probably a crowd that was suborned or kind of collected by the enemies of Jesus for the purpose of condemning him. Because, yeah, but also we can also say that, you know, the crowd in general is fickle. So this crowd could have turned, but probably this particular crowd was made out of pilgrims who didn't know really what was going on and probably followers of Jesus and probably well-wishers and sympathizers who said, finally, finally, the Messiah is revealing himself, right? This is what the catechism says about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It's kind of, it's a staged coming in. You know, Jesus kind of lends himself to a production. There are different pieces to it, right? There's the donkey, there's the preparations, there's the coming in, there, there's the mantles on the floor and cloaks, there's palms, there's crowd participation, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So what's going on? Uh, Catechism 559, how will Jerusalem welcome her Messiah? Although Jesus had always refused popular attempts to make him king, remember, after he feeds the 5,000, he actually has to run away from Herod and from the people because they want to make him king. Well, not Herod. Herod doesn't want to make him king, but he does want him. But the people do want, want to make him king, right? Because feeding the masses was one of the attributes of the Messiah, and healing was one of the attributes of the Messiah. So he actually has to turn around and go into Perea, go well without of of the, of the purview of the population up in Galilee or in Judea in order to escape the people who want to make him king. At this time, though, he chooses the time and prepares the details for his messianic entry into the city of his father, David. Acclaimed as son of David, as the one who brings salvation, and here also the text says, Hosanna means save us, save or give us salvation. The king of glory enters his city riding on an ass. Jesus conquers the daughter of Zion, a figure of his church, neither by ruse nor by violence, but by the humility that bears witness to the truth. Their acclamation, the acclamation of the crowd, blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken up by the church in the Sanctus of the Eucharistic Liturgy. Remember Sanctus, 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 Domiteus, Sabaoth, right? Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. That introduces the memorial of the Lord's Passover, okay? Here's another thing about the 569. Jesus went up to Jerusalem voluntarily, knowing well that there he would die a violent death because of the opposition of sinners. And there's a reference to Hebrews 12.3. This goes against all those who say that Jesus was just a poor guy who was there at the wrong place at the wrong time. That he was kind of like this hapless guy who didn't even know he was God or who maybe woke up to his own divinity in stages, you know, and, and who was uh, instrumentalized. He was like a good teacher who came in and poor guy, he just kind of, you know, fell victim to the political and the economic exigencies of the situation. Unprintable remark. No, that's not true. Obviously, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. And yes, you'll, you will read some of that stuff about how Jesus didn't know he was. He didn't know he was divine. How could he have known all the things that he was talking about? Well, here we are gathered, calling ourselves Christian after Christ, pro proclaiming to have a relationship with Jesus, proclaiming him Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And how can we do this unless we believe that he is God, that he is the son of God? And if he is the son of God, then no, none of these things are beyond him. None of these things are beyond him, of maintaining a dual uh, natures in his own person, the human nature and the divine nature. How these two coexist in him is a, is a, it's a mystery. It's called a mystery. The homeostatic union, it, it's it, the hypostatic union. I'm homeostatic union. <laughs> homeostatic, those are the lizards, right? Right. Hypostatic union. I've been t helping my daughter with her homework, and you can tell. <laughs> Hypostatic union, which is the mystery of how the two divine and uh, human natures can coexist within the person of Jesus. Within Jesus the carpenter, how the divine word, the logos, the, you know, the, the son of God, the divine one, could actually descend and be in the body of Jesus, the humble carpenter from Nazareth. It's a mystery. You know, people spent their whole lives dealing with stuff like that. For our purposes, what we need to know is that Jesus took this on voluntarily, that Jesus knew he was divine, that Jesus took it on in the fullness of his humanity and in the fullness of his divinity, both ways. But that it was a voluntary acceptance. He didn't just kind of fall into it and say, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll... I'll suffer and die. But all along, his humanity is fully manifested by, because he's saying, well, if it's possible, if it is your will, I would prefer this cup would pass from me because who wants to suffer? But then he recognizes the necessity of his suffering. Okay? So that's what's going on here. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is the culmination of a whole line of preaching about the master. Remember, it, it, all the stories he's been telling have been leading up, and they're all about a master being away and coming back, or a man going to a far country and then returning, <clears throat> coming back to the house and finding his serv servants ready in some stories. In some other stories, he, they're not ready. And here, finally, the master, Jesus, the Mashiach, the king, the son of David, has returned to Jerusalem and demands an account from the leadership of their conduct. 
All right. And this is, of course, the beginning of the passion. Now, let's just kind of pick apart a little bit the entry. First of all, this entry, why did, why did, you know, why do we have to make such a big deal about this thing, about Jesus coming into Jerusalem? Couldn't he have just walked in a gate with everybody else like he had before? No. The whole point is at this point, it's the Messiah. It is the Son of God. He is coming back to Jerusalem to pay the price. And it is important for the sake of the people there, but also for the people of the sake afterwards who record these events, for his apostles, for his disciples, and for us, ultimately, that he did it the way he did it. You know, it has incredible significance. The prophet always returns to Jerusalem before he can be slain. All the prophets were slain in Jerusalem. Jesus' exodus is predicted at the transfiguration. Remember in uh, Luke 9, 3, 1, he's, he's uh, hanging out with Moses and Elijah. What are they talking about? About his exodus, about his exit back to the Father that was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. So this too has to be, has to be uh, fulfilled. Now the people, even the just generic pilgrims, kind of, oh, yeah, oh, cool, this guy, oh, he raised the dead, oh, he must be the Messiah, okay, oh, Hoshana. I mean, it's all kind of like, you see the preparations, you see Jesus coming in in a very humble fashion, and you can almost see the puzzlement on the faces who are expecting what? They're expecting the guy with the wide shoulders and, you know, the big, good-looking, quarterback-looking type, you know, with a crown on and a, on a white stallion who is going to be delivering the people from the Romans in the Davidic mold, in a heroic mold, in an epic mold. And here instead we have a humble carpenter from Galilee with a Galilean accent who's riding in not on a white charger but on a pretty silly-looking animal, a donkey. About one of the, it's what, probably the least dignified animal you could find is a donkey. And so you have him coming in from the east. Again, let's look at that. He comes in from the east. Traditionally, the presence of the Lord always came in to the city from the east. The Israelites entered Canaan from the east. The Ark of the Covenant entered the temple from the east. King David, when he returned to reclaim his throne from Absalom, came in from the east. Ezekiel saw the Shekinah, or the glory the presence of God, approached the temple from the east. Jesus, And even the way Jesus approaches the city from Jer Jericho also proclaims his willingness to kind of fall into that mold. The declaration of his willingness to accept his role as God's chosen one. And so you have the disciples arranging for the entry. Now listen to this. And when, okay, he went up, then he drew near, this is verse 29 of chapter 19, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village opposite where on entering you will find a colt tied on, which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, and found it as he has told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their garments on the colt, they sat Jesus upon it. Now, other, in other versions, uh, it says that there were two of them. 
There was a donkey and an ass. There was some, two, two of them. And the idea is that this is a young foal. If you know anything about horses, you know you can't get a foal to do anything without his mommy. Right there. If you even take a, a foal to surgery, you have to bring the foal and the mother with him or her in on the van to surgery. Because if not, the foal is not going to cooperate. And in this case, you have probably the, the foal or the, the young donkey or colt with his mother. And so both are untied so that Jesus will be riding into Jerusalem on one, but, but there's another one alongside, kind of keeping him company. And again, if you know anything about horses and, and, um, and the like, it's, it's pretty uh, plausible. Now, what do we know about donkeys? We know that they're pretty foolish looking. You've ever taken a good look at a donkey? Of course, in our culture, we don't really have donkeys. But in the Mediterranean, you can still, you know, run into donkeys on the road. You know, they're tiny. They're tiny. They look totally foolish. They've got the big, long ears. They don't look too bright, you know. As a matter of fact, in, in Italy, if they, if they used to discipline you, they'd put you in a corner and give you a pointed hat and call you a donkey. Because, you're, you know, that means you're stupid, you know. Or anyway, that's not politically correct now, but anyway. Um, and, but, but, but they're stubborn. They're stubborn, aren't they? You know, I mean, a donkey, if he doesn't want to go anywhere, you can be pulling him all you want, and it's, nothing's going to happen. This one, on top of that, is young. Nobody had ever sat on it, which means what? He was unbroken, which means that if you're the first person to sit on him, what in all likelihood could happen to you? You know, you're going to get bucked. You're going to get tossed, Right. Instead, it turns out that this particular young colt is available. He's submissive. He might look foolish, but he's doing the job. And on top of that, he fulfills a prophecy. Because, of course, we have Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah specifies in chapter 9, verse 9, that the Messiah will enter on Jeru in Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right? Famous donkeys of the Bible. I thought I'd... <laughs> you know, one day I want to do a series of famous donkeys, famous animals of the Bible, then bad girls of the Bible, you know, or, you know... Famous donkeys of the Bible, Genesis 22, uh, 22, we have Abraham, you know, using a donkey to go up to sacrifice um, Isaac. We have Numbers 22, remember Balaam, the donkey who ends up being smarter and holier than, than his owner, or her owner, I think he was a girl donkey. And then we have 1 Samuel 9, 3, Saul rounds up all his father's donkeys. And then finally, of course, there's more donkeys, but I thought I'd just spare you the other ones. But these are the important ones. And this particular donkey was fit for sacred use because no one had ever ridden on it before. And that was one of the prerequisites if you were going to offer a donkey in sacrifice that that particular thing had to be, had to be fulfilled. Now, Psalm 24, and we have sung this. We usually sing it uh, on um, Palm Sunday. Remember, the king of glory comes, the nation rejoice. That is Psalm 24. And it says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And so you have two direct fulfillment right there of prophecy as the king comes in, the king of glory. Now, other precedents, Solomon, the king of David, 
in order to claim his kingship, it wasn't just handed to him on a silver platter. Because if you will recall, David had many sons. And they were all quite unpleasant. I don't know about Solomon. Solomon was probably nicer. But the other ones were pretty feisty. And in order to, to, and they were all older than he was too. So yes, it was David's wish that Solomon be king. But Solomon had to kind of earn it, claim it, get it, you know, be a kind of out uh, maneuver his opponents who were also his brothers. And one of the ways he does that is he rides into Jerusalem seated simply on a colt dressed in white. And even then, the crowd recognizes the attributes of messiahship, of a savior-like king coming to the people. That's in 1 Kings 1, 38. So you have all these things combining together to form this picture of the Lord coming to Jerusalem, but on as pre-announced. You have many prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament being fulfilled right there, right there on that very day. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled in Passion Week alone that dovetail with Jesus' actions and no others. And so, remember we said from the slopes of the Mount of Olives, the, the, what would happen was, would be all the pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem for the pilgrimages would all come up this big band. They'd all come up this big windy road and they would crest over the Mount of Olives and there would be Jerusalem. And I would look and look and look to find a picture of what it must have been like. Herod's temple was faced in marble, white marble and gilt. It had gold leaf in it as well. Imagine what a picture that city must have presented in the morning sun to the pilgrims as they crest over the Mount of Olives. And, and finally, they're in Jerusalem. And all along, they're singing the songs of the ascent. Remember, you, you read your psalms, and then you see psalm of the ascent, psalm of the ascent, psalm of the ascent. What's an ascent? It's going up. And what are these people doing? They're going up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is at 3,000 over sea level, right? 3,000 feet above sea level. And so what are they doing? They're ascending to Jerusalem for the purposes of pilgrimage. And so think about all these, these pilgrims, uh, Psalm 120, remember Jerusalem, all the songs that sing about Jerusalem, pray for peace, Jerusalem, all, all the songs of all the pilgrims of all the ages going up to Jerusalem, all condensed right here, the temple gleaming in the sun. Finally, they have reached their destinations. And so you have them coming into town, not only for the Passover, but also for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we have people in town for at least a week or two or three or four or five if you want to stay over until Pentecost, which is the feast after. Now, most pilgrims traveled into the city. And what you did is you came up, of course, you crested over the Mount of Olives, and then you would go look for the Sheep Gate, because at the Sheep Gate in the week right before Passover, the... the um, the um, breeders of the sacrificial lambs who only came from Bethlehem would congregate at this one gate called the Sheep Gate. And you would go in and you would pick your, your lamb and you would take your lamb with you and then you'd have your, lamb, your Passover lamb sacrifice with you, while, you know, while, during your sojourn in the city. And so that was what happened at the Sheep Day. And traditionally... The Sunday before Passover was Lamb Selection Day. 
course, it wasn't called Sunday, but I mean, it was that, that day was considered Lamb Selection Day. And so you have Jesus coming in, and he enters through the sheep gate on Lamb Selection Day on his donkey. When we call Jesus the Lamb of God, you know, when we, when we see uh, the priest after the consecration holding him aloft saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want you to think back to this too. Think back of the, the pains that he took to fulfill all the prophecies so that we 2,000 years later could read it and believe. And our faith would be strengthened. There's so much more that we could understand. There's so much more that we could talk about. There's so much more that's probably there we don't even know about. The richness of this mystery. But let us try and delve into it as much as we can. Time allowing. Now during a festival like this, of course the population would double. And the Romans especially knew that if mayhem was going to occur, it was going to occur during a holiday. And usually Passover as the main holiday would have a double the opportunity of volatility because all kinds of people would pour into the city, the population of the city would double and treble, and all kinds of stuff would happen. So what would the Romans do? They would import in extra garrisons from Caesarea, from the coast, which is really where everybody was based. Most Romans didn't really want to hang out in, in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate himself has a nice villa in Caesarea. He probably has a townhouse in Jerusalem, but he's probably not going to spend too much time in Jerusalem. Why? Because Caesarea is nicer. It's got a beach, you know, it's cooler, all that stuff. So you have extra troops being brought in from the garrison at Caesarea. And what you need to understand is that the Romans had built a fortress. Well, actually, I think Herod built a fortress called the Antonia. And the Antonia was uh, a big imposing structure that was right adjacent to the temple. And in some instances, by standing on some of the parapets of the Antonia, you could look into the temple, into the temple precincts. So think about all these people coming in, animals, uh, confusion, children, um, you know, there's no cars, you know, donkeys, uh, all kinds of things, all pressing to go into the temple, all under the watchful eye of the soldiers sitting and standing on by the Fortress Antonia, looking, just waiting for something to happen. Think about all that. A constant menacing presence. General crackdown on criminals usually would occur during that time. And in this particular uh, week, we can probably anticipate that uh, there had been a, the usual crackdown on criminals right before Passover. And in this case, probably a, crim, a particular criminal had already been arrested. A zealot, a troublemaker, an assassin by the name of Barabbas, who probably was already in custody because he was already being tried and probably already condemned. And so you have all this stuff going on, and then on top of that, Jesus is arriving. You know, you can just see the Romans saying, who is this now? With all the other stuff that we have to go through, now we have to put up with this guy coming in on a donkey? And what does this mean? Thank God the Romans don't understand what the crowd is doing, because the crowd is waving palms. Palm fronds. Palm fronds traditionally were, were like flags. They were like waving the Jewish national symbol, the Jewish national flag. Actually, the uh, menorah 
was the Star of David wasn't really a symbol of Israel until in the Middle Ages. Before that, it was a menorah that always kind of portrayed uh, Judaism. And in this case, you have palm fronds being waved as a sign of uh, almost like nationalism. And what they do when they meet Jesus is by uttering the prayer that was prayed, prayed during Sukkot, which is the Jewish festival of tabernacles or booths. And in this uh, festival that you would wave palms and you would shout Hoshana, Hoshana. And what Hoshana or Hosanna, as we translate it, means is save us, save us, salvation, salvation. And so here is the crowd waving national symbols and screaming at Jesus, save us, save us. And then reiterating the words from Psalm 118. O Lord, save us. Psalm 118, verse 25. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So by chanting from Psalm 18, 118, the crowd is showing an appreciation of Jesus' messianic status. Of course, if you remember, Psalms 113 through 118 were also known as the great Hallel, or the great Psalms of praise. And they were Psalms that were sung during Passover. And Psalm 118 had been traditionally also sung during one of the enthronement procedures in ancient Israel. So it was kind of almost like a, an enthronement psalm for the king as the king processed into Jerusalem. So put it all together. The Jews are saluting their Messiah. They still haven't quite gotten it. They think he's going to be an earthly Messiah. But they're using, they're pulling out all the stops, all the symbols that they can pull the Hoshana, the palms, the Sukkot prayer, the chanting of Psalm 118. It all points to, they have a, a, a foggy, very foggy idea of who this guy is as he comes into Jerusalem. And as, the, as we as the church have kind of pulled some of that Sukkot prayer into our mass as well, Sanctus, right? Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see how what we say is lifted almost completely, word for word, from the Sukkot prayers, from Psalm 118, and from the events of Palm Sunday. Let's take a break. As we resume our lesson, uh, let's uh, put in another piece of the, pu of the puzzle. As we, I think we've kind of examined this, uh, the uh, entry into Jerusalem. Let me just add one more thing. As he rode along, they spread their garments on the road. And that, again, is a pretty significant element because what that means is that they spread their cloaks and if you remember anything about um, first century Palestine your cloak was your most precious belonging remember it was your coat it was your blanket it was your bed it was your bag <clears throat> most people only owned one it was a pretty you know if you gave it in surety of a debt by law you had to re return it before nightfall so you'd have something to sleep in you know, it was a kind of a big, kind of a big deal item. And we have these people spreading their garments before Jesus so that his donkey might step on their cloaks, might step on their garments. And we have a precedent here, of course, another one, right out of the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 9, you have King Jehu 
welcomed back into the city by putting garments under his feet as well. Again, another note of a kingly procession into the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and then, of course, we have Jesus coming in. Instead of going through the gate called Beautiful, which would have been the more logical thing for you to do if you're coming in as the glorious Messiah, at the last minute, he veers to the right and enters the lowly sheep gate, which was right next door. It's almost like he's saying, look, here I am. I'm, I'm your Passover lamb. And so you have all these various expectations, right? You have the Sadducees expecting Jesus, hoping Jesus will just go away because they don't like what he's going to do. Then you have the Pharisees wanting Jesus punished for his many transgressions for, as a blasphemer. You have the Zealots who don't quite know what to do. They just want to, you know, make some confusion, kind of uh, achieve their goal through, through violence, and, and you, so you have all these people kind of wanting Jesus to be what they want him to be. And I'd say that the main point we can draw, or one of the main points we can draw from this entry in uh, Jerusalem by Jesus is what? Jesus is who he is. Jesus is who he is, and we need to accept him for who he is, not for who we want him to be, or not for who we need him to be. Are we accepting him for who he is presenting himself to be right here? We can't remake him for our own needs. We can't remake him into our own image because it suits us. If we accept the Jesus who heals us and shoulders our burdens, we also have to accept the Jesus that commands us to take care of the poor and clothe the naked. If we accept the Jesus that gives us the power in the Holy Spirit, we also have to accept the Jesus that says to us, pray for your enemies, forgive, don't hold a grudge, be nice. Turn the other cheek. So as, as we accept the benefits and the perks of being Christians... So we accept the whole package. We have to accept the whole deal about that whole deal about how we wish it wasn't there, but it's there. You know, that, that part about picking up your cross? You know, the one that we wish we could edit out? That's part and parcel. Sometimes Jesus uses that cross to draw us closer to him. Sometimes it's that particular cross, or that particular burden, that particular suffering that makes all the difference and draws us closer to him. And in the end, guys, where are we going? Where do we hope to go? We want to go home. That's our goal. That should be our ultimate goal. Not only for us, but that should be our ultimate goal for our spouses and for our children and for all those around us. In the end, if we really care about them, where do we want them to go? That's true love. Where do we want them to go? Not just ourselves. Not just because it suits us and it's a, we, we just do this Christian thing and it's okay. For us, but we don't want to impose it on anybody else. If you truly love those around you and you truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he, he, he has done what it says here for you, what other choice do we have? What other choices are there? This episode concludes with the indignant Pharisees and Sadducees ordering Jesus to rebuke the joyful and welcoming crowd. 
But it's like the inevitability of Jesus' kingship is kind of rising up because he says, you know, like he says before, even the stones will speak. And of course, nothing in this passage does not have a reference to the Old Testament because in Habakkuk 2.11, it speaks of stones crying out the truth of God. And in Psalm 118, there's the whole motif of the builder and the cornerstone and the builder and the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of the building itself. The whole, the whole um, issue of Jesus' kingship is explored again in, in Psalm 93 and in the chapter of Daniel that we looked at as well. So consider that whole package that is Jesus coming into Jerusalem, all the things that uh, we want to see from the text and consider what we want to do with it personally. This isn't just an intellectual exercise. These aren't just like neat facts that we can file away for another day. This is stuff that's meant to rock us to the core. This is stuff that's supposed to remake us more and more in God's image. What can we draw away from what we've learned about the entry into Jerusalem? And when we, in a few weeks, attend Mass and services for Palm Sunday, how is this going to change us? as we sit there at mass between the kid who's crying and the kid who's chewing gum and the guy in front who's reading the bulletin and the people who came in late and are leaving early. How's that going to affect us? Hopefully, we ourselves are going to be able to let our guards down and just say, Lord, even in the middle of this imperfect, imperfect situation, in the middle of your Eucharistic banquet, where heaven comes down to earth and you become flesh and blood before us, Give me the strength to do all that I need to do. Because in the end, we proceed out of, our own, out of our own strength? No, we proceed out of the strength that God gives us. The Holy Spirit and the strength that he gives us in the Eucharist. And I suppose that's the... I mean, why would he go out of... He's going out of his way to present this Eucharistic image. The lamb, the Passover lamb. What did you do to the lamb ultimately? You ate him. He's all the signs are pointing to a Eucharistic culmination here. Then we switch gears. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now you have a better picture as he's drawing near. He could be probably on the slopes of, of uh, Mount Olivet. Saying, he saw the city, he wept over it. And said, would that even today you knew the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. He just goes into this, this um, beautiful, almost poem, bemoaning the fate of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem has been faithless. Jerusalem has rejected her Messiah. Jerusalem has been waiting for her Messiah for thousands of years. And here he is. And she has no use for him. And not only do the rank and file have no use for him, out of ignorance probably, probably not through any fault of their own, but the ones who are really culpable are the leaders, the ones who have been exposed to the things that he has done, the ones who are able to connect the dots and kind of understand the implications and still reject him. When he speaks now, of your enemies visiting you and you not knowing the time of your own visitation, he's really referring himself to the leaders, not to the general population of the time. 
and also elsewhere in John when he talks about how the Jews, and he speaks about the Jews and the Jews and the Jews like they're, like they're you know, the bad guys. Well, it's not the, the Jews are the bad guys. It's these particular set of leaders of the Jews at that particular time were the ones responsible for leading the people astray. Okay, so you need to kind of narrow it down a little bit. And so he speaks about elsewhere. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicklets. He's very tender. He's very tender towards his people. And that tenderness is something that we can look upon for ourselves as well because he's just as tender for us. He's, he's not there telling us to buck up, you know. <laughs> I mean, although sometimes we do need to buck up and kind of, you know, get a grip. But the, the point is, we can always count on him to be tender. We can always count on him to have mercy. That's one of his names, is mercy. But we have to ask him for his mercy. We have to be aware of his mercy and ask him for the mercy that he gives. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast you down, will cast up a bank. But before I get into the, de the details of the destruction of Jerusalem, think about the many reasons that Jesus had to weep over Jerusalem then. The hardness of heart, the, de the deception of the leaders, the economic, political, social motives that lead to them rejecting him. But think about what he could have been weeping about today if he'd walked into our town. You know, what, what, what really is he weeping out over? He's weeping over people's hardness of heart, isn't he? The people who reject him even when he extends mercy. Even today, Jesus might weep over leaders who lead people astray. So-called Christian and Catholic leaders who promote and condone a culture of death, a culture of abortion, a culture of euthanasia. And all the various life issues that I'm sure you're well versed in. How about the scandal of division amongst the body of Christ? How about the scandal of indifference to the poor? How about the incredible imbalance between the very wealthy and the very poor? That's a scandal. That's a scandal. How about the cultural relativism that hounds us at every turn? How about the abuses of power that we see? There's many things, I think, that would give Jesus great sadness today and, and, and do give him great sadness. But they all stem from that one thing, the hardness of heart. There's a story that's told of a man, an atheist, who was dying, and the demons were coming for him and holding him down. And even as he sees the demons closing in on him, Jesus comes and extends him his mercy and, and, and just raises his hand to him, saying, will you take my hand? And with his dying breath, the man hardened and blind in his sin spits on the hand and says, I would rather have the demons that I know. It's that kind of hardness of heart that we are confronting in the world. And what are we going to do about it? You know, we know people who are hard of heart and we know our own hearts can be hardened. If we don't keep, saw it's like you water your plants. What happens if you don't water your plants? Well, they die. But before they die, what happens? That earth gets packed in there, doesn't it? It cracks up, it, it, it dries out, cracks form, and then it keels over. And that's what happens to our hearts. They become so hard. And so how should we perceive of ourselves? 
You know the way I look at myself sometimes? Standing here talking and talking and talking and talking. Most of the time I, I'm praying to God that maybe I'm, I'm raising, I'm throwing a few speed bumps in the way of that progression, progression of development of hardness of heart. That there is a development of hardness of heart, but maybe somehow, somewhere, some of us can just retard that hardness, can throw some rumble strip or speed bump or warning sign in the path of those who are bent for destruction, and they are bending themselves towards destruction. There's nobody hounding them. Yes, we have Satan, the enemy of our souls, of course, but we have the mercy, we have the great mercy of God and the Holy Spirit. And so when, when Jesus weeps for these people, that think about that kind of person when you're, when you're thinking about Jesus weeping, the ones who wouldn't know him because they have made themselves incapable of knowing him. And we should have Jesus' heart on this. We should pray for Jesus' heart. We should allow ourselves. It's so easy to harden our hearts. It's so easy to say, I have tried and tried and tried and tried. And this, forget it. I'm never talking to you again. Oh, I'm not talking to him again. Or she better not call me because I'm, I have nothing to say to her. Why are we doing it ultimately? To defend ourselves. It's, it's protection. It's self-defense, isn't it? Because we've been hurt so many times. So we think that by drawing the curtains and by erecting our defenses that we're protecting ourselves. But actually what we're doing is we're shutting all the bitterness and all the resentment, all the unforgiveness in, in with ourselves. Like we're on this side of the barrier with all the forgiveness and poison. And the rest of the world is on the outside. But who's suffering on the inside with all the poison? Holding on to bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness is like taking poison and expecting the other person to die. <laughs> it's not going to work. And allowing your heart to harden that way is like a plant withholding water from itself. You know, this is the heart that Jesus has for us. And we need to work to get that heart for ourselves as well. Not in order to despair because there is hope. I mean, hope is a cardinal virtue. Why would they put that stuff in the scriptures if it weren't true? Hope is a cardinal virtue. And faith is a cardinal virtue. And the way you deal with all this stuff is in love. And that's why it's the queen of all virtues, love. So a few things to keep in mind. As you see Jesus' sadness, as he confronts the beautiful resplendent city, the joy of the pilgrims who is about in 40 years, to be utterly destroyed. The beautiful temple burnt down, stones cast down one upon the other. Verse 43, for the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's a pretty graphic picture of what's going to happen in 40 years in one generation. So if people there alive who hear Jesus here are probably can be, could be alive at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's giving a pretty, a pretty accurate account because, in fact, one of the ways the siege was conducted was the, the Romans were famous for uh, creating war machines, you know, embankments, uh, wooden embankments, or even building up earth all the way to the top of the walls so that they could come into the walls. So that fortified cities, there was ways into, you know, fortified cities, even though Jerusalem was pretty fortified. So if you read Josephus, 
who was a Jewish uh, Galilean historian who worked for the Romans and uh, kind of uh, most of his life was spent trying to justify the, the greatness of the Jewish culture. And he does a pretty good job. And he writes this book called The Jewish Wars. And uh, he speaks about the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and what happened. And he describes it pretty well because that's kind of how what had happened. Titus came in, the siege lasted a year or so, and then that was it. The place was destroyed. Now, you may have read in places as commentary to this passage where some people, some uh, scholars will say things like, well, how could Jesus have known? <laughs> you know, I just give it to you as I see it here, but... Um, you know, how could Jesus have known? Here we are talking about the Lamb of God, the entry of the Messiah, the Son of God, the eternal Logos, the Messiah, the Eucharist. Stop me if I'm saying something that you don't, you know, don't understand. And, and yet we still have this blindness. It's like a blind spot, you know, where people are saying, well, how could Jesus, this is a bit too accurate a description of the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, how could Jesus have known? Well, how could Jesus have known he was God? By the same token, why? Because it's a divine mystery, you know? So uh, a lot of people will use this passage as a reason to date the composition of the, of the Gospel of Luke well after the year 70, of course, 70 being the destruction of the temple, because they're saying, well, this account could only be, have been written by somebody who was an eyewitness, somebody later on. And of course, the later you date these Gospels, the more problems there are with their reliability and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, take it or leave it. But, you know, if the Father could raise Jesus, and Jesus is the very Son of God, you know, I have no problem with his having foreknowledge of certain events. I don't know. I mean, you know, if, if what's her name on the, what's the psychic one? Who is it? The singer? What's her name? Come on, guys. Diane, Diane Warwick. Dion Warwick. If Dion Warwick knows what's happening in the future. <laughs> Surely, I'm kidding, obviously. Surely the Son of God can know a few things or two or 40 about what's going to happen, especially if it's within the message of a prophetic context. We, get a better, we need to get a better grip, really, guys, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, the kinds of gifts that God gives us. God will equip us with whatever, whatever we need. And if, he, if we need a prophetic insight into a situation, he will provide that prophetic insight. If God wants to give us a word of wisdom on a situation, God will give us a supernatural word of wisdom. He will give us a supernatural gift of counsel or encouragement. He will give us a gift of healing if we need it. God will provide for us all that we need. If we need a gift of miracles, God will give us a gift of miracles. If we need a gift of faith, God will give us the gift of faith. God will provide us. These are not things that he's just holding back if we're good. And then he's going to give them to us. All he's waiting for us is to say, lay them on, lay them on me. Just bring it on. I want all the gifts that you have for me, God. I don't want to hold back. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them. But then that's, that's, of course, up to you, God, to teach me and to show me what to do. That's why it's, you know, this is a pretty uh, fair uh, example, I think, of the, of the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Messiah. And it's one that we can all anticipate because we all have the Holy Spirit by virtue of our baptism and confirmation. And so it's all things that we should look upon as our birthright. The power of life in the Holy Spirit is for one and all of us. It's not just for a few of us, it's for all of us.
So that type of uh, critical approach to the scriptures really proceeds out of an atheistic, pseudoscientific presupposition. And you need to recognize it for what it is. And a lot of good people have been taken in, but that's no reason for us not to recognize it for what it is. Okay? Now, um, what does Jesus do right after these words? You know, again, you have to think about this, okay? He, th these are a series of vignettes or episodes. Uh, Jesus probably went home after this proclamation because he was already probably in Bethany. But he comes back the next day. And what does he do the next day? It's almost his first act as he comes into Jerusalem. It's not something that a publicist would have told him to do or a PR person, right? You're, you're like a politician or a leader. You're coming into the place. What's the first thing you're going to do? You know, uh, wrecking commerce and, uh, you know, interfering with contractual relationships is not one of the first things you want to do as soon as you come into the temple. 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold so he comes to his temple. He comes to his father's house. It's almost like he's saying, now, I'm coming in as the Messiah. I'm coming in as the king. This is my house. This is my father's house. And let me show you the proper relationship and the proper attitude for my house. Now, of course, you know, there was a real economic necessity on the other hand. You know how there's always, on the other hand, there's always another point of view on this kind of thing. You arrived in Jerusalem, you probably were for somewhere else, you probably didn't have the local currency, so you need a money changer. You arrive in Jerusalem, you're from someplace else, you need a sacrificial animal. You may have picked up your lamb at the sheep gate, but you may need something else pick it for other sacrifices, right? You arrive in Jerusalem, and you need uh, a place to stay. And so you, you, know, you may find somebody in the temple who is willing to furnish accommodations. You arrive in the temple and you have to make a sacrifice. Well, you have to kind of interface with the guy in the temple who's there to say, okay, now what do you need to do? Oh, you need to do a sacrifice like this? Well, here, go over here and pay this to that guy and then go over there. You know, there's all kinds of bureaucracy, all kinds of stuff that really needed to happen in order for the whole structure and a whole system of the temple to work and to function. So there are legitimate needs that are being served, except that they're there in the courts of the temple. And that's not cool. Do we have a picture of the temple? Let me just show you what we're talking about. And this is something that we're going to be looking at um, as the year progresses, uh, the temple was an international cult center. It received a yearly temple tax, the shekel from the pilgrims. That's a picture of Herod's temple, so the second temple. Pilgrims needed to purchase animals for sacrifice. They needed to pay expenses. They needed to change their currency. At one time, the Mishnah says, a commentary, that there were 13 money-changing tables alone, plus 13 money chests in the temple. But the main thing you need to keep in mind, so therefore we're talking about probably in the outside courts of the temple right here or even outside of the gates of the temple. This is the temple. This is the Holy of Holies. This is the court of the Jews. This is the separation. This is the court of um, the Gentiles. Okay? And so you have various progressions of holiness. And you couldn't pass behind certain um, doors without following a certain ritual profile. Okay? Uh, so I think we're, we're probably in, right in here where you could barely see there were the colonnades of the temple called the stoa from the Greek, which were big, giant, uh, colonnaded uh, sort of uh, courtyards, long uh, porticos. 
where people would set up business. And that's probably where we're talking about. You know, that's where eventually the, the first apostles and disciples after Pentecost will hang out a lot right here in the various porticos and teach. Why? Because it was shaded, you know, it was more comfortable. You weren't out there in the middle. You could find a corner, you know, to hang out. So that's what you need to think about. He's immediately challenging the status quo, and he is challenging the revenues of the priests, because a lot of the, pre the revenues from the priests derive directly right here from all this activity that he is disrupting. Right here. So, you know, it is no surprise that the Sadducees are, not, are still not very enamored with Jesus, and if they weren't enamored with him before, you can imagine now. What kind of it elsewhere? I think in John it says he actually constructed his own whip. So it's a kind of a deliberate thing. He knew he was going there. I don't think he said, now wait a minute, i got to make this whip, but stay right there. I'm coming back. You know, no, he probably was all prepared for that. You know, he probably was marching into Jerusalem or coming up the, the Jericho Road making this whip, making this instrument that he was going to use or making it in Bethany. This, is, this, again, is another fulfillment of prophecy. It's one of the many prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus. In uh, Isaiah 56, 7, it says, For my house will be called a house of prayer. And that's what he quotes, he says elsewhere. He says, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it what? A den of thieves. And that is straight out of Jeremiah seven eleven. My house has been desecrated like the den of robbers. His coming into the temple also echoes another prophet. See, these prophets are so handy. You know, they, they really just, you know, if you know where to look, it's all been said. It's all been foretold. Why? Because God does not hold the ball. He does not hide the ball. It's all there. But you got to dig. Malachi 3.1, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And he adds, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears. Does that sound familiar? You heard that? What's that? That's the Messiah. What's that? The fourth movement? That's so beautiful. I, I would sing it, but I'm not going to sing it. I, it just it, it echoes in my mind every time I read this, you know. But who can abide the day of his coming? And who can endure? And who can stand when he appeareth? It's the arrival of the, la of the just judge, finally, isn't it? It's the culmination of all these parables he's been telling about a guy going to a far country or the guy going on vacation or the guy going away and then coming back suddenly like a thief in the night. Or suddenly he arrives in the middle of the night and he wakes up his householders and says, so what's going on? And so you have the arrival of the just judge and he's coming to judge the people but especially the leaders the sons of levi and that too is from malachi 3 verses 1 through 2 the lord in malachi levels a charge of thievery against the priests malachi 3:8 will man rob god yet you are robbing me in the light of this charge jesus is clearing out of the temple and calling it a den of robbers is obvious reference to prophecy and is it actually a prophetic movement all of itself verse 47 and he was teaching daily in the temple so he did all this stuff you think he'd go home after all this that he was not popular after that 
Think of all the businesses that he disrupted by overturning the tables of the money changers. Think about all the coins. Think about all the animals let out of their pens. Think about all the confusion that there must have been. And yet he came back and taught in the temple daily. And he's pretty recognizable. And he, will, he is pretty recognizable if he wasn't. <laughs> Before then, he is now. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people sought to destroy him. So here you have it, written larger than life. This is it. The stewards have been unfaithful, lining their own pockets at the expense of the poor and abusing the lowly and the widows. They have heaped burden upon burden upon the people and become a stumbling block. God will judge them and will find them wanting. Remember he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The burdens you put on the, other, on the people are not ones that you carry yourselves. All these nitpicking rules that you're putting on people and yet you're disregarding the basic qualities of love and mercy and compassion for one another. You know, the way that you're hypocritical, the way that you model things that you are not, the way you fake holiness, but you are not. The way you think you're better than everybody else, but you are not. This is, again, it's kind of a recitation of all the things that the Jews are being, or the leaders of the Jews are being judged for. And you know, the, the leaders of the Jews were judged once before in pretty dramatic terms. Can you remember when that was? When they were all carted away? 586 AD. Babylon came down on the kingdom of Judah like a ton of bricks destroyed the temple, the beautiful temple of Solomon, the most beautiful of all the temples, and carried them all away in two or three or four, five different waves of deportation. Luckily, God had mercy upon them and relented, and after 75, 80 years, they were able to return in two or three or four different waves of the return from the exile and rebuild a temple and put their lives back together again. But this time, that's it. The writing's on the wall. The temple will be destroyed this time for good, it has never been rebuilt. It's funny, you Google uh, Temple of Jerusalem and you get all these, there's like two or three different societies for the rebuilding of the Temple in Jerusalem that will come up if you, if you look up Temple of Jerusalem. I mean, there's a lot of talk about rebuilding the Temple, but it hasn't been done. And apparently the rebuilding of the Temple is one of the signs of what? Of the second coming, of the end of the world. So, stay posted. They start building it. Watch out. <laughs> Sell your stocks. God will judge them and find them wanting. The terrible punishment is the annihilation of the Jewish nation. Basically, the Jewish nation really recovers, never really recovers after 70 AD. They do kind of limp along, and they get themselves re-destroyed re in 120 AD. But really, for all intents and purposes, that's the end for them. The master is here to close out all the accounts. That's, I'd say, the bottom line today for this lesson. By cleansing the, t the temple, Jesus is preparing and purifying it for his own teaching in its precincts. He's also preparing it for the preaching of his own disciples. When the Holy Spirit goes across the street from the Holy of Holies to into the hearts of all the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Mm -hmm.